0: Hello, I'm Evan Novi Williams,
1: and I'm Michael Barn. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. And today, we are joined by special guest host Jason Kelly. Oh yeah, who is with us for the whole week? Jason, welcome to the show.
2: Virtual bro hugs all around. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Long-time listener, first-time special guest host. This is cool. I listen to you guys every weekend, and I'm obsessed with these topics, so I just I can't wait to get into it.
1: Well, then let's get into it. There we go. All right, let's get on with the podcast, and let's talk about the Miami Dolphins and CEO Tom Garfinkel revealing possible changes to this stadium that would help people adhere to social distancing guidelines. Evan, How are they doing that?
0: Yeah, guys, the big question on everybody's mind when live sports come back, what do they look like when, you know, we might be ready to have fans in stadiums? And the Dolphins are, to my knowledge, the first, you know, major U.S. pro sports team to say, oh, this is what we're looking at. This is this is what it might look like. And it includes, you know, six foot, you know, markings on the pavement leading into uh, each ter- turnstile, giving people specific times for when they should be checking in. So you don't get this huge crush getting to the gates all. Of at the same time. He also mentioned, you know, specific ways of exiting in which, you know, you go row by row. He said similar to what you do in church. So again, it's not this massive crunch going in and out. Uh, Jason, this feels like a lot of uh, a lot of new rules restrictions uh, for sports fans. You know my big question when I look at what the, the dolphins are planning and and, and certainly and talking to other teams about what they may be thinking about as well is how much kind of extra coordination is too much for your average sports fan?
2: Yeah, I mean, I read this with such fascination, Evan and Michael, because uh, for a couple reasons I mean first is somebody 's got to be the first to figure this out and mm. There's going to be a template set and everybody's going to have their variations on it. One of the things I was fascinated about, because we're talking about this every day with our own workplaces, right? Like, how are we going to get in and out? Is there going to be testing, especially in a place like New York City where the three of us normally work and go into a big office in a big, busy city? It does strike me one of the interesting things about the dolphins being on the front end of this their owner, Stephen Ross, uh, Hmm. big commercial real estate guy. You know that he's thinking about this across his office buildings, his retail shops. Ultimately, they own Equinox. So they're thinking about all of these things Stephen Ross and related companies are. And so I wonder how much they're bringing into this that is going to dictate not just what we do as sports fans, but elsewhere. I also am fascinated by the idea that this is happening in Florida, and there has been a lot written some critically, some positively, about how Florida, the state, has handled this. And I do feel like lots of people are going to be looking to that part of the country for cues on, on how we go forward here.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Going back to the first thing you said, you know, Michael Barr, one of the things that that reading this made me think of, I don't know if either of you have seen the photos of, you know, mock-ups for what casino tables may look like Mm, when casinos reopen, and they have, you know, it's full, you know, clear glass or clear plastic partitions. Everybody looks like they're sitting in their own, essentially little pod, you know, you can't, you know, there's glass between each of of you, between you and the dealer, you and the table. Um, You know, it certainly feels as though you know, sporting events like going to casino in my mind are very social events. You know, you're you're going and you're you're buying beer with your friends, and you're going to you know get your kid a t-shirt or a hot dog. You know, there's so much about the the ancillary spending at events as well. Um, and Michael, I, I guess I, again, I'll ask you as well. You know, how much if if all the rules are in place, you have to check in two hours before game time specifically because that's when your row is loading, and you can't be near you know the, the people on the other side because they have to be six feet away and you know you can't go to a, you have to go to a specific bathroom at a specific time and, and, and you can't go to get food it has to be delivered to you at what point is there just too much for your average fan to come
1: through right when you started the first part of your sentence right from the subject <laughs> verb and predicate I, look uh, and, and I, I'm in my home. I can watch it on TV. I can go to the bathroom whenever I want to. I can eat whatever I want. I can drink whatever I want right there on my couch. Now I'm being told that I got to deal with this experience, which brings me to the next point. Hard Rock Stadium can hold 65,000 fans for a football mm. game. The Dolphins are saying, well, it might be down to 15,000 I fans know. next season. That's not which, a lot. <laughs> that's not a lot. But I'm wondering are they going to raise the ticket prices to help make up for that? I, I would just want your thought.
0: It's a, it's a great question. And, you know, one of the big problems that sports teams always have, and, and Jason, I actually, before we move on, I want to get your thoughts on this too. Um, how do you price your tickets, right? Because yeah. you want to have a, a select few people in there that have the means and are able to pay a lot of money for really sweet access. And you also don't want to price out, you know, maybe your lower income fans who maybe save up a lot of money to get to one game a year. That's a very different calculus when you're letting 65,000 people into your stadium than when you're letting 15,000 in. And and as you said, Michael, because revenue is so tight right now, there's going to be pressure, I think, on these teams to to cater that 15,000-person experience to the people who can pay the most. And I would hope that they are going to figure out some ways to maybe try to keep the balance of really expensive ticket prices and affordable ticket prices as opposed to just going to the, you know, the most expensive fans.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that raises such a fascinating point about the broader epidemic here, the broader pandemic I should say, which is, you know, we're revealing all of this about haves and have nots. And listen, haves and have-nots have nots has been something that any of us have gone who have gone to a sporting event, we are very, very well aware of that. You know, all the money that's poured into suites, all the money that's poured into high-priced, high level experience versus the average person, the average family that's really been priced out of this in many ways. And the way that I read this, at least, it feels like it takes out some of the really, that some of the most fun parts about this. You can't, I have a hard time imagining a really robust tailgating situation. I mean, I'm thinking mm. about going to a game at, you know, a MetLife, and I know we're going to talk about colleges in a second, but, it, and that's a whole other issue, but, you know, this whole sort of common fandom that I think Michael is alluding to and this notion of, If somebody scores a touchdown, you can't high five your neighbor. You know, it's like, you're like, what are you doing? Like making a sign through the plexiglass? Like, I don't even know what that looks like if, you know, and it seems to take away so much of what we care about as fans. And like you said, the economics have just got to be completely upside down here. And I don't think people want to do a joyous thing, which I think going to a sporting event is, if they're scared. And that's what it comes down to for me.
0: Yeah, and all the sports teams, you know, and all the leagues are thinking about all this stuff right now. The NFL has a little bit of an advantage in that they start later. Their stadiums are outdoors, which, from folks I talk to, is a, it could potentially be a massive difference. You know, I think this calculus of what your arena looks like is a little different mm. if it's an indoor facility versus as opposed as opposed to you know a big outdoor outdoor football stadium.
1: Uh, let's talk about college. And we're starting to see universities putting together preliminary plans to ensure that they'll be open this fall. And uh, Evan, I'm sure that a lot of online betting sites in Las Vegas are saying, please, open. are hoping to have a college football season. There's a lot of money in that.
0: Absolutely. And sports fans as well in general. I mean, the the college, we haven't talked that much on the show about the college sports and specifically the college football world. But, you know, the entire, you know, elite college football, you know, coaches, athletic directors, everyone has drawn a line in the sand and said, we cannot have college football in the fall if students are not on campus. And if, if they had said otherwise, I think there would have been a whole ball of problems. But that raises the stakes for what it takes to get college football on campuses in the fall, you know, the NFL teams don't have, you know, a, a 20,000 person community that needs to be up and active before they can host games at Hard Rock Stadium in September. Colleges do. To, to my knowledge, I don't have an exhaustive count. It seems like over 20 of the, of the big time power five college football schools have all announced their plans uh, for reopening. But definitely, Jason, you know, there there is a lot more that's going to go into getting the college football season off the ground than there will be getting in to get getting the NFL season off the ground.
2: Well, I have to say this is a story I've been similarly obsessed with in part because I grew up down south in, you know, SEC country and every weekend when you live down south and probably in the Midwest as well, is completely built around college football. And and so I I have a hard time imagining what autumn in the South looks like without college football. So I'll start Mm -hmm. there. I mean, also from a very parochial perspective, I think about the idea of college campuses because I've got a junior in high school who's like looking at schools and trying to figure all of that out. And and also know a lot of folks you know, just here in my neighborhood in New York whose kids are either starting college or may or may not be going back to college. This is the number one issue for so many people. And I think so many people listening to us right now, it's a safety question, but it's also a huge question of economics for the schools. And I wonder what you guys make of this notion that it's one thing to think about the overall economics of an academic institution, But it also, I think, bears repeating or reminding folks that so much of the athletic budget for so many of these schools comes from college football, especially these big-time schools, right?
0: Without question, yeah. And and this is the kind of the big calculus that a lot of people are trying to figure out. And and when we talk about higher education, there's so many other... Economic forces going on right now. I understand that there are some undergrads who are maybe suing yeah. uh, colleges because the colleges aren't fulfilling on on what they thought that the experience that they were paying for was. I, I think there's a there's a whole world of hurt associated right now with with colleges trying to get things off the ground. So college football is is a piece of, but not the only kind of piece of why they they, they feel you know tremendous pressure. I think to to get things back to some semblance of normalcy uh, in September. Uh, and, and one other thing on these on these college football stadiums, you know, we just talked about an NFL stadium, Um, I I haven't been to that many, but the ones I've been to, they're not built often in the same way that your your NFL stadiums are. You know, if, if suites are now okay, and those are areas in your stadium that are probably Good for large groups to, to or not large groups, but groups to buy into. If you've been to the big house in Michigan, there's no there's no suites. Right. It is uh, it is essentially just bleachers all the way up for 120,000 screaming fans. It, it, it's a lot harder to retrofit a lot of these stadiums um, to to whatever it is that 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 being at a game may look like. If it's you know 100 or, or 150 little 10 person pods, whatever those things look like, it's a lot harder a to retrofit a lot of these stadiums. And two, as you said, Jason, the money just isn't you know these aren't they aren't as well capitalized as you know an nfl team would be they don't have access to the capital in the in the same kind of way so you know no question there are a lot of forces here that that michael barr a lot of forces here that i think are going to change you know a lot of people are grouping nfl and college football together as will they happen will they not and there's actually i think a pretty big difference here that we may see
1: well, and credit to my brother-in-law for asking this question yesterday. And I said, that's a good question. I don't know. He asked, well, if you don't have a college football season, then how do the people in the NFL approach the draft for the next season? Do you have to go by having a special combine or or what happens? But when he said it, I'm like, well, that's a good question. I, I don't know.
0: I have spoken to some people who... Believe that if college football can't happen in the fall, there will be a massive push to have it in the spring. Yeah, and I don't know what that looks like for for having it again in the fall the following year. I don't know if it's an abridged spring season leading into the fall. Um, but again, you know, as Jason mentioned, all that money they're going to have to get they're going to try to get this in whatever way they can and in the same way that you know the NBA may be open to delaying the start of its next season to get this one in and the NHL may do the same and maybe Major League Baseball will do the same I think they're going to be willing to be as flexible with this upcoming 2020 season as possible so that they can get it in period and and if that means maybe disrupting delaying the the back end of the the following season I think they're going to be going to be willing to do that.
2: I have one more thing on this, which is I also, having been to a lot of college football games over the course of my life, more than probably I I should care to admit, but um, (laughs) there's also a real – live economic ecosystem in so many of these college towns that really relies so heavily on game day. You know, you think about the tailgating, which we talked about mm. vis-a-vis the NFL on a big weekend in Athens, Georgia, or Clemson, South Carolina, or Tuscaloosa. Again, I'm using all Southern examples, but you're. I mean, as you said, Evan, earlier, you think about the big house, you think about the economies of all these places, the hotel rooms that are reserved. I mean, this there's a knock-on effect If you don't have fans in the seats, even if you manage to play the games in some sort of quarantined or antiseptic way, having those people not show up in a South Bend or elsewhere, you know, has broad economic
1: consequence.
2: I think that is I'm sure someone can model it out, but it's a little scary to think about.
1: And finally, and I'm sorry, you guys are going to get a rant from me on this one. <laughs> <An> <laughs> unexpected decision from a judge in California. He ruled in favor of the United States Soccer Federation in the wage discrimination lawsuit brought by members of the U.S. women's national team. Now <clears throat> you guys are way smarter in business than I am. But the last time I checked, one is less than three, which is the comparison that women's soccer players make compared every one dollar to what a man earns every three dollars and what i do not understand in 2020 and i'm sorry if i'm starting to sound like stephen a smith but he's (laughs) he would carry on even more than i would and and i can't blame him why in the world does this happen in 2020 especially to the women's soccer team Michael
0: A. Barr, I love it. Um, well, I, can answer, I, can, I can answer part of that, and, and I think the, the, the sentiment of what you're saying is, is what I want to actually talk about. Because the, the reason why, and we've talked about this on the show when this lawsuit was originally filed, You know, the main thing that the judge said in, in this ruling is that the men and the women agreed through separate collective bargaining agreements to two separate structures— and the men agreed to essentially a very low or maybe even no base salary and a lot of kind of per game bonuses and the women agreed to the opposite they wanted the financial stability of kind of a steady you know yearly contract and as a result you know fewer bonuses and, you know, you can talk about how big or small the discrepancy in their pay was, and certainly the women's team and U.S. soccer disagree on, on how big the, the spread is. But the truth is that they agreed to two separate structures, and this judge wanted to affirm that this was, you know, th- this was structures that were agreed to in, in a fair process. The thing that is more interesting to me, Michael, and, and ties back to what you were saying, is that I, I feel like the women's team has already won this lawsuit, whether you know the judge ruled as he did or whether it got dragged out even further, they're probably going to appeal this decision. Who knows where that's going to go? But in the court of public opinion, the, the man who ran U.S. soccer is out. The legal team is out. They revised their filings. The sponsors were upset. Joe Biden was tweeting about it. Jason, do you agree that in some ways, whether this lawsuit succeeded or not, the point was made and there's going to be change happening?
2: I think you're right. I mean, I I do think that the the positive 2020 side of this to use uh Michael Barr's framing is that I don't think any reasonable person out there would say, "Oh no, they should the men should definitely be paid more especially given uh, And I think this is one of the great ironies of of this lawsuit, how terrible the men's team has been over the past Mm -hmm. few years. And there is, uh, as as a side note, there is this sort of weird thing that happened where them being so terrible actually hurt the women's case. And that Mm -hmm. was, as I was reading into this, it was was really interesting to, to see that, that the comparisons became more difficult because the men missed the World Cup and all of those things that happened. I agree with you. I mean, I think you have to put this in the broader cultural context. I think you have to think about Time's Up. I think you have to think about Me Too. And this came at a time, and candidly, with a team and with several individuals, Megan Rapinoe obviously being at the forefront – And I am interested to see where she goes from here rhetorically, right? Mm -hmm. And whether she sort of leans into exactly, uh, as they say, what you're uh, pointing out, which is in the court of public opinion, they've largely won. And if this legal opinion went against them... Does it ultimately matter? I would hate to see it, to editorialize here for a second, I would hate to see her and others sort of back down from this or be in any way chastened, because I think you're right. They've made the right, they've got the right message out.
0: Mm -hmm. And there are still parts of this lawsuit that are still going to move forward. From what I understand, the two main ones left are kind of working and travel conditions. The, the men's team travels, you know, in, in airfare and, and, and accommodations, hotels that are, that are much better than the women's team. The judge seemed to say that is not fair and that that should continue. Uh, and the second one being kind of training, access to training and medical support, yeah. uh, which also feels like something that should be fair, regardless of, of, of kind of the, the, the contract and pay that, that, that was negotiated. Um, Michael Barr, next time we see a, a, a big U.S. soccer game most likely is going to be in the Olympics. You know, the women are, are a big part of that. And What kind of reception do you think, you know, fans are going to give? What, what do you think the, 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 the kind of conversation from a business standpoint around that team is going to be if, if those games happen in Tokyo?
1: Oh, it, it, people are going to be screaming. I mean, in fact, you can hear me from the studio <laughs> that I'm going to be screaming my, my and cheering for the team because you should not have to put up with this 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 is a little bit of the emotional part and i'll keep it short my mother god rest her soul she was in the women's army corps during world war ii my aunt was also in the women's army corps my other aunt was also in the women's army corps all three of those sisters were in the women's army corps and that's back in the 1940s and here we are and they did all this work Rosie the Riveter, all of this going on, and it's 2020, and we're still dealing with this garbage. I do not understand it. I think if there is any business out there, they will be smart enough to attach to the women's soccer team because of what you guys said of all of the press that they have gotten from this decision. And and they'll make a boatload of money. Forgive me for putting it that way, but it's true. I, th- this is This is unconscionable. I think you're right there. And to put a bow on this, you know, I I think you're right. The
0: market is going to dictate a lot of this, right? If if more sponsors want to, you know, participate in the women's national soccer team, that means their pay is going to go up. You know, there was a historic labor agreement last year, you know, with the WNBA. There's the Women's Professional Hockey League is expanding up into Canada. Uh, There's a potential for kind of a groundswell and maybe a shifting of support and fan dollars more and more towards women's sports. And, you know, for folks out there who who feel that way, that's the best (laughs) way. way to support the, the women's national team. When they play in your town, buy tickets. If they're on TV, right. watch them. Th- those are the things that, that that matter probably more, especially in light of what happened last weekend, more so than, than the lawsuits.
2: I mean, I, I would add one more thing, guys, which is that A lot of this is going to come down to leadership of U.S. soccer, right? I mean, you had people lose their jobs over this. And Cindy Parlo-Cone, she's the new president. It's unclear, I think, based on reporting whether she's going to stand for re-election next year. But you have a former women's player at the top tier of this. And we do know, and this goes to your point, Michael, this notion of leadership has to be bought into this. You know, you have individual contributors, a Megan Rapinoe, a player, a live player, an active player. Um, but ultimately, the leadership has to decide. And we saw that that was where this really broke down with U.S. soccer is. The people
1: at the top just sort of didn't buy it. Now that my blood pressure is up, <laughs> this is the Bloomberg <laughs> Businesses Sports Podcast. I'm Michael Barr, along with Jason Kelly and Eben Novi williams
0: We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. Join us again at the end of the week. We're speaking with Jamie Regal, the CEO of Formula E all about the electric racing circuit and what they're doing
1: in the face of this pandemic. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online wherever you get your podcasts.